you've got this huge beast of a global economy that has been built around fossil fuels and turning that ship is really difficult. You know, if you picture us like coming into the corner and we've probably only just got to the, <laughs> the point of that turn now. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail, I'm looking at the year's developments in climate change. Record-breaking temperatures, raging wildfires mm. and devastating flooding, all just a taste of what could happen in a worsening climate crisis. It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. A chorus of rage and disappointment has met the release of the government document on how to slash climate emissions. When do our emissions start to reduce? Because I don't see on any of our graphs where I can see the point where it goes starts to come back. Well, particularly for New Zealand, unfortunately. We're we dirty. have not done well. The Climate Change Commission has recommended sweeping changes to society. For the first time, we've learned the cost of doing nothing will be 2.3% of GDP by 2050. That's almost double the cost of acting. Now. I view the Commission's report as one of the most significant documents I'll receive in my time as Prime Minister. The government is offering people thousands of dollars cash back if they buy an electric vehicle. Māori and Pacifica people say they've been shut out of climate change activism. I talked to Eloise Gibson, Stuff's climate change editor, who breaks down the big news this year and what's actually been achieved. I would say that we have laid the groundwork to stop climate change well this year. We've certainly seen momentum in getting to the starting line of stopping climate change. <laughs> I wouldn't say that we have made any actual progress on cutting emissions, either in New Zealand or globally. Some countries have done better. So I'm not... I'm not actually as gloomy as some about how we've done this year. I, I actually see huge momentum in kind of preparing to change and starting to make small changes. But obviously what we need now is to actually move at pace in the other direction. It just seems like we should have got further by now. We should have got further. You're absolutely right. Um, the first climate conference that I covered was... 2009 in Copenhagen and that was meant to be the conference that finally turned everything around and even at that stage there was a feeling that you know we were late to the party and we kind of couldn't believe that people weren't taking it more seriously and and acting faster um, and that conference kind of flopped and it's taken what another 11 12 years since to really get us back on track uh, Paris the Paris Agreement came in between and that, that was a huge step forward. But again, it was just the, the setting of the target and the getting everyone in the room and the deciding to do something stage of things rather than the actually doing things stage of things. And so you're absolutely correct in your feeling that we, we shouldn't still be having a conversation about getting started um, and there is enormous frustration and of course what we're seeing now in the physical environment uh, and the IPCC report that came out this year and New Zealand science is showing that the real physical and economic and in some cases you know loss of life effects of that delay are quite real and they're being felt now. 
The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a United Nations global body of scientists and experts. The IPCC's report in August said that the extreme heat waves in Europe and elsewhere... Record temperatures are being broken across the world, with Europe potentially recording its hottest ever day. It comes as severe heat waves intensify across much of southern Europe and North Africa. They would have been very unlikely to have happened without that baseline warming uh, that greenhouse gases have caused. One of the important things about this report is that they've taken the last seven years of science and basically made it an absolute statement of fact that humanity is causing climate breakdown. This is the first of three IPCC reports in a set. So this is not the one that looks at the effects on humans or what humans could do to turn this around. So those will come in the next two reports. Each of the three chapters is kind of a mammoth undertaking on its own that takes years. So this was the physical science one that just looked at the physical climate. And it's not just international studies pointing the finger at humans. We had a report out from the Met Service and uh, Victoria University and others showing that the devastating Canterbury floods this year. States of emergency have been declared in Ashburton, Timaru and the Selwyn district today as torrential rain hammered Canterbury, causing massive flooding. They were 10 to 15 per cent more severe than they would have been without that one-ish degrees of warming that we've already seen because hotter air holds more moisture and therefore dumps more moisture when it happens. And, and actually that there was about a, there were about a fifth more likely to occur at all. So we may not even have seen floods on a devastating level without climate change. And that en- enables you straight away to start putting a cost in, in the billions um, and in some countries and in some places, particularly those, those devastating heat waves in terms of loss of life on the inaction that, that we have seen so far. And you mentioned earlier about New Zealand emissions. Have they actually gone down this year? The official tallies of greenhouse gases always run about 18 months behind. So Statistics New Zealand and the Ministry for the Environment prepare these very detailed inventories. That's a really long process um, and we don't have those results for this year yet. Indications are that COVID both last year and this year did create a downturn in emissions. But because New Zealand's profile is 50% agriculture, which has just kept on trucking throughout the pandemic, uh, actually we haven't seen that much change. uh, And there doesn't seem to be really much sign at all of structural change yet. So if you take those temporary dips from, for example, international aviation and some manufacturing at some times, out of the equation, we still haven't really seen the turn that we need to see. So gross emissions have been hovering around 80 million tonnes a year for a really long time now. Uh, And in fact, we saw coal burning at the Huntley power station go up. Government figures show in the first three months of this year, the same amount of coal was used to generate electricity as was used in all of 2016 and 2017 combined. A dry year means that we can't generate as much power from the hydro dams. And, you know, ironically, of course, if we have more droughts as climate change gets worse, that issue is going to get worse. We know that the government is looking at making big changes to the 
electricity generation mix so that we have some kind of base year capacity that isn't coal. But, you know, again, we haven't, that hasn't happened yet and we're still stuck in this old model. We haven't made much progress in our domestic emissions yet, but we now have a budget which we have to stick to. That budget Aloise Gibson is talking about is the target for our emissions set by New Zealand's Climate Change Commission. So the Climate Change Commission was this independent entity that was set up by the Zero Carbon Act in 2018, and they put out their first report this year. So the idea is that this is an expert body, it's politically neutral, and they do the mahi behind the scenes, do the modelling to see what New Zealand could and should do to get to carbon neutral by 2050, which is, of course, what every country needs to do to keep the globe within kind of cooey of 1.5 degrees Celsius of heating. They put out their first draft report in February this year and followed that up with a final report in June. And they have set us a series of budgets. So the first budget starts next year, 2022. And that's just a short one that runs for three years. And then from then on, the country will get a budget every five years. And those can be adjusted as circumstances change. But the idea is that it's almost like a spending cap. They gave us a fairly gentle lead-in to cutting our emissions. So the first budget period, I think their initial suggestion was that we would knock about 5 million tonnes off what we would have emitted over the next three years. So that's per year. That seems pretty pretty small in the scheme of things but when you think about the fact that we haven't managed to get our emissions down at all yet you know despite the government declaring a climate emergency a year ago and despite this having been talked about for a very long time us having had an emissions trading scheme since I think 2008 uh, actually five, five million tons is probably harder than it seems and more important than it seems. Was that the biggest thing in your opinion, to come out of that report? Yeah, I think that it was hugely important for what it represents, apart from anything else. Um, it represents a roadmap that is not tied to one political party or one government, and that should hopefully endure over the decades that we need it to to get to zero carbon. But to me, the biggest takeaway from that report was that we can make this transition without stuffing the economy and that in fact given that the globe is really clearly moving towards zero carbon now you know virtually everybody is doing this it's less risky and cheaper to move now than it is to keep dithering. If we stick to today's policies and settings they will cost us an estimated 2.3 percent of GDP by 2050 but based on the Climate Commission's report, if we act now and invest in strong, inclusive, climate-friendly economy, the impact on GDP will almost be halved over that period at around 1.2%. Now, the Climate Change Commission themselves, you know, including the chair, Rod Carr, would be the first to say that those numbers are very imprecise. It's extremely hard to forecast GDP and particularly out to 2050. Uh, and if climate change has taught us anything, it's that not everything that's important is actually captured by GDP. I mean, you can raise GDP by causing a whole lot of pollution, which is ultimately going to have a whole lot of cost. So 
it's not a perfect measure and the ways of forecasting it are very imperfect as well. But there seemed to be enough certainty that at least overall it was more beneficial to act than to not act, which I think has always been been the idea behind climate action. But seeing the numbers uh, modelled now, I think, is quite powerful. Has the New Zealand government taken any actual action this year? It has. There have been some important changes to the emissions trading scheme to give it more teeth. Last year, the government finally put a cap on the emissions trading scheme. And this year, we had our first auction of carbon credits. So what does that actually mean? And why is it important? Well, there's a couple of ways to deal with emissions worldwide that have found favour. And it's, it's kind of creating a carbon market. So the idea is that you put a limit on how much companies in your country can pollute and then your country will find the cheapest way to cut emissions by trading. So if there's one company that can plant trees, they'll sell those credits to another company that pollutes. And in that way, the, you know, the price will drive companies to take action. So that's all very well, except that in New Zealand, we had a trading system that didn't have a cap. So... There was a price on emissions, but that price was set by the government, not by the market, and there was no limit to how many units the government could issue, as well as various other things to do with the emissions trading scheme. For example, the fact that some of our biggest polluters get almost entirely free allocations, um, and also that the agriculture so far doesn't have a price incentive to reduce its emissions. Even aside from those things, you can see that the lack of a cap was a bit of a problem <laughs> when it mm. came to, to driving change. So this year saw the first four actual auctions. So moving on from a situation where there was no limit and the government set the price to companies bidding, there is still an, uh, some upper limits so far on how high the price can go. We saw it shoot up pretty quick. As time goes on, even the limit on the price is going to be lifted. So what has changed is that the market is now setting the price of how much it costs to pollute the climate and also the price can now really go up. The government's new clean car package is intended to help decrease greenhouse gas emissions to meet a 2050 carbon neutral target. We've seen subsidies for electric vehicles, which you know probably should have happened last term under the, the Labour New Zealand First Government, but they didn't. That has been a concrete change. And most importantly of all to me, uh, we've seen the climate disclosure regulations. New Zealand is the first country in the world to pass a law that requires financial institutions disclose and act on climate-related risks. This was the announcement that all companies over a certain size, so all companies that are listed on the stock exchange and all companies that are worth a particular amount of money, now need to disclose to their investors not only their impact on the climate, but the risk that climate change poses to their business. And I think once we start seeing that translated in dollars and cents, that will change the picture for the private sector in Mm. terms of actually incorporating climate change into the big investment decisions and, and other decisions that they make, and also making transparent to people who might have 
KiwiSaver funds or other money in these companies, you know, what are the risks and are the people running these businesses really preparing for them and really trying to reduce their own impact at the same time? I think what we haven't seen from the government this year is, and I apologise for using this um, this horrible buzzword, but I think it works, <laughs> the joined up thinking. So, you know, if we are in what a climate What does that mean? <laughs> I know. Well, let me explain what I think it means in this instance. Um, if we are in a climate emer- emergency, as the government declared we were in December last year, you would expect to see that flow through into all of your transport funding decisions, all of your regional economic development decisions. We are still seeing billions of dollars going into projects that are going to make climate change worse. You know, we saw the Climate Change Commission say when COVID struck, for goodness sake, don't let the economic recovery package from COVID make this job harder. It's already so hard. (laughs) Like, please, please, government, could you give us a green transition. And I don't think we have seen that flow really strongly through into other cabinet decisions that aren't on the face of it, you know, specifically climate decisions. On the other hand, again, um, some of the unrelated decisions that the government's made will help. So the moves to increase density in our big cities, if backed by a massive investment in public transport and and walking and cycling to serve those denser communities, that could really shift the dial. So it's certainly not all bad. I would just like to see more cohesive and um, decisive moves. Because the other patchy job by the government has been its big plan to reduce emissions. A document which aims to shape Aotearoa's emission reduction plan is being described as weak and disappointing. The government's emissions reduction plan was meant to be out this month in December. It was meant to be in law by the end of this year. The government's given themselves an extension until May next year. And what we have instead is a draft plan in fact, it's not even a draft plan. It's a consultation document, isn't it? It's a consultation <laughs> document. It's essentially, you know, a series of, of bullet points, um, slightly more detailed than that, but but not in some cases. And I think that has to land at the feet of the government. I mean, yes, they've had first, you know, New Zealand first in their first term, um, preventing some aspects of climate action. This year they've had Delta, which certainly would have slowed the work down, but you know, they passed the Zero Carbon Act in 2018 and they wanted it a long time before that. It took that long to get bipartisan consensus for it. And long before they even dreamed of the Zero Carbon Act, it was very, very clear that this work needed to be done. So it shouldn't really have come down to, you know, to one year when perhaps officials were busy on other things or you know, completely slammed for various reasons and, and couldn't quite get the mahi done. So I think you know, for next year, really, there is an opportunity for the government to prove that it is driving this from the top and and getting that work done. So what I'd really like to see is that our Rakatahi Māori, our Pacifica, our disabled and other frontline communities are centred in any campaigns and any public policy to do with climate change. One of the interesting things we saw this year was School Strike for Climate Auckland disbanding and essentially saying that they were too Pākehā <laughs> and that they had been dominating the conversation at the expense of 
Pacifica and Māori and other Indigenous voices. And that was interesting. I think creating that space was an interesting thing to do. And I think we're yet to see what that will mean in terms of if Pacifica voices, if Indigenous groups like Te Arafatu are given the space and the freedom of the airwaves to drive the protest movement. What does that look like? I don't think we've we've seen the answer to that yet. It may look nothing like school strike for, for climate. Pacific voices, especially around climate justice and funding, were also highlighted at the annual Global Climate Change Conference this year in Glasgow, known as COP26. There's a strong argument that we should be helping them out of the crisis. They're really on the front lines of climate change and have done very little to create the problem. Their per capita emissions are just negligible compared to someone living in a developed country like New Zealand. The government's committing $1.3 billion over four years to support countries most vulnerable to climate change. At least half of that money will go to the Pacific. One of the things that I'll be following closely in the next couple of years is how much of that money is really new? Like, is some of it just repurposed aid that we would have given the Pacific anyway? And what has it been spent on? Like, are we creating real positive change with that money? And are we spending it in a way that people on the ground want and believe will most benefit them? But, yes, certainly New Zealand ramping up its climate finance was a big change this year and you know, some would probably say well overdue because we hadn't done our share up until that point. What else do you think was the big takeaway from COP26 this year? So New Zealand raised what we call its NDC, its Nationally Determined Contribution, which is the promise that we make to cut our emissions. And the current date for all of those is 2030. Uh, New Zealand was a bit late to the party on that one. We really let it go down to the wire. We've waited until the actual summit in Glasgow to announce that we were bumping our pledge up. The interesting thing from the summit and for New Zealand with that pledge is that we're going to be buying a huge chunk of that climate action from other countries. So there is just no way on our current path that New Zealand's domestic action on climate change is going to come anywhere near our promise. Every sector and every country in the world has a reason why they don't think they should be the first to move. China has a reason why the US should go first and the US thinks that if China isn't moving, why should it move? You could go around in circles on this forever while we all burn, or you could recognise that actually everyone needs to act. This is an all-hands-to-the-pump situation. And I think I think there is recognition of that across a big swathe of society. And I think if planned well, the transition could actually turn out well. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode, Alexa Russell produced it, and thanks to Eloise Gibson. Matewa. Wa.